Resistance with a capital R is it will, you'll hear a voice in your head that says, you're a bum, you're a loser. Who do you think you are to start your own business? As a, as a writer or any type of a creative person or an entrepreneur, to me, it seems like the first order of business is finding some way to overcome that, some way to get around that. Because if you don't get around it, you're never gonna do anything. Welcome to Tractionville, the podcast for companies running on EOS. I'm your host, Chris White, along with my fantabulous co-host, Benj Miller. And today we're really excited to bring our listeners um, a, a very extraordinary man. And I don't want to embarrass him or make him blush or anything, but thank God we don't have video. It's just audio, right? But uh, today uh, we have author Stephen Pressfield. And uh, Stephen has written many books, um, uh, historical fiction, military fiction, nonfiction. Um, his, his, some of his notable works are Gates of Fire. His latest is A Man at Arms, um, Turning Pro, The War of Art. Stephen, welcome to Tractionville. Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. And hi to you, Benj, and whoever else is listening to it. All right. So I'm going to, so I got to share a little backstory here for our listeners. So uh, I have a client. Uh, his name is Scott Mann. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel Green Beret, an owner of Rooftop Leadership. And it was through Scott that I met Stephen. And, and, and Scott shared with me that Stephen's played a huge part in, in Scott's life. And, uh, and he's like, Chris is just one of those guys you got to meet. And, uh, and I'm thankful that I, I have and I'm thankful that you're here. And I thought, you know, just to kind of kick things off, Stephen, there, there's so many great stories here. Um, but can you just give us a little background on on who you were and who you are now? <laughs> Here's a nice open-ended question, Chris. <laughs> um, let me start. I'll just I'll make it really quick. I was 55 years old before I published my first novel, even though I was I had been trying all those years. And uh, um, I sort of had one of those lives where I kind of, I started out trying to write way before I knew what it was all about. And the bottom kind of dropped out of my world. And uh, I sort of went on, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, uh, I went, uh, I crossed the United States 13 different times. My 65 Chevy van, I worked like, I don't know, 20 jobs in, 15 different states or something like that. And, uh, but finally, you know, um, you know, that the old thing of being an overnight success, it only takes you 30 years to get right. it. Finally, I did sort of get it together, but at, at around age 55 in the sense of being able to write, do what I follow my calling and what I, what my dream was, which was to write. And, uh, so I've been doing that ever since and, uh, trying to help people along the way a little bit. Do you, do you recall at like at what point or what age you felt like you were like you had a writer inside of you? Um, I was <laughs> that took a long, long time. But I was my first job was in advertising in New York. I worked for a big ad agency in New York. It's like a young punk copywriter. And I had a boss named Ed Hannibal who quit and wrote a novel and 
the novel was a big hit. It was called Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks. You can look it up. And Ed quit and he became like a star writer, you know? So I was about 23 years old and I said, well, why don't I do that? I mean, just quit, I'll write a novel too. So yeah, I thought, what what's, could possibly go wrong? Um, so at that point, I sort of had the dream, the dream kind of kicked in, but I wouldn't say that I really felt like I, I could call myself a writer for like another 30 years. And all, all through that period, I was thinking, am I a phony, am I a fake, am I an imposter? You know, all that right. sort of stuff. Yeah. What was your, what were you writing about when you started? Um, first, you know, I, the first thing I wrote was actually was about Marine boot camp, and it was absolutely terrible. Um, but I, I had a kind of, I wrote three novels that never were published, and it took me forever to write, you know. Um, and they were all uh, autobiographical. I sort of had this crazy Hemingway idea. I'm such, I'm a total idiot, that <laughs> the only thing you could write was the absolute truth. And it had to be something that happened to you. And you could never, if, if your character did something that you yourself hadn't done, that was cheating. You know, like you couldn't like pull out a gun and shoot somebody or anything like that. Right. And uh, so, but finally I did have sort of a breakthrough where I said, isn't there a thing called fiction? Isn't it okay to like make shit up? <laughs> and so that sort of, uh, that kind of was the real breakthrough for me as far as, you know, technique. Yeah. I said, well, I'm never going to write about myself ever again. I'm never going to write about anything I know. I'm just going to make it all up. Yeah. But you that's know, not I, true. You, you've you <laughs> written several books about yourself. Yeah, I have uh, maybe not those, you know, in the, uh, it, but those are sort of to help other people write, you know? Yes. But they're not here. here one of the things I wanted to ask you is when you write those, they're not what we see a lot of these days, which is here's the tips and tricks and techniques and all of that. You have a way of going all the way down to the soul of the reader and making them come face to face with themselves in some way that they were not expecting, not ready. And it creates some tension, a, a challenge in there. Where does that come from? And you, what, what it's like, it's obvious that this guy's done a lot of his own soul care, soul work, deep thought, like asking the questions other people don't want to ask. And, you know, Chris and I coming out of writing the clarity field guide, we wrestled with a lot of those same questions, but it doesn't make them easy, but you have, you have a very special way of making us look at our soul in the mirror and ask ourselves some hard questions. Where did that come from? I, uh, well, the first, thanks for saying that, Ben. You know, I'm, I, that's what I sort of hope for, but mainly it's, I think uh, I've had to ask those questions of myself, you know, yeah. those hard questions. And, you know, why am I such a failure? Why have I worked so hard and I can't get anywhere? You know, what's wrong with what I'm doing, you know? And at some point or another, you know, I have come up with answers on that thing. But uh, so I, I think, you know, when I first wrote The War of Art, there were a lot of, there were just a few kind of personal stories in there. You know, this happened to me, that sort of yep. thing. And I thought, and when I was talking to friends, I'd say, I should take those out, you know, it's too personal, you know? And they said, oh, no, 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 put more of those in there. We want more of those things. And all of the stories in the War of Art that are about me are all about like disasters that happen to me, 
you know, and it's like, and I find that people love to read those things, you know, um, just, just as a tiny example for anybody who hasn't read the book, there was a movie that I wrote and it was a complete catastrophe when it came out and the review in daily variety, I'm going to use, it was with a partner named Ron Chusette and the review said, Ronald Chusette and Stephen Pressfield, we hope these are not their real names for their parents' sake. You know, and so uh, anyway, I, I don't know if that's an answer, Benj, but it, I, I think I, I try to just kind of tell the truth as it hit me. Today's episode is sponsored by 90.io, N-I-N-E-T-Y dot I-O. 90 is a cloud-based collection of the essential business building and awareness tools you need to make running EOS easy. The clean and extraordinarily intuitive system includes every one of the tools you need to not only run EOS, but cascade it down and throughout your company. EOS is great, but implementing it throughout your organization can overwhelm even the best of us. Our friends at 90 are obsessed with making sure that every one of the EOS tools is simple to find, simple to use, and captures all the data your team needs to hit, an average of 90% of the rocks, measurables, and to-dos. For more information, you can visit www.90.io. Well, it's it is special uh, I, on two two planes. One is most of us are scared to go to the depths that you're calling us to, and then you've got a special layer of sauce on top of that, which is helping other people do it as well. Um, all right, so let me totally flip the other way. So these stories that you write um, maybe are even more mind-boggling to me. Like uh, Chris and I are, are blessed. You sent us a, a pre-release copy of your new book, A Man at Arms, and I'm reading through this. Uh, I'm, I'm not finished. I'm reading through it, but I'm now thinking because I know the guy that wrote it, uh, it's now making me go, how do you come up with a story like this? And not just once, some people have one good story in them, but uh, how, how many of this is what, 13, 14, 27? What, what is this for you? <laughs> it's 20 altogether, but I think it's about 10 that are fiction. Okay. Oh, yeah. So we are on your 10th, almost, uh, and, and not just fiction, but almost like an epic, right? Like these are, these are epics. And I, I'm just so curious where this comes from. I mean, I don't know if any writer really knows where anything comes from. I mean, in this story, A Man at Arms, I have a recurring character. I have only one recurring character in my books. And, and um, he's been in three books. His name is Telamon of Arcadia. He's sort of like the Clint Eastwood man with no name of the ancient world. Kind of a one-man killing machine, Western type of hero, you know? And... People have always said, he's only been a minor character in the other books. And people have said to me, why don't you write a book just about this character? So I've wanted to do that for a long time because he's sort of an alter ego for me. And, um, you know, it just took me like 13 years to kind of find a story. I kept trying stories out in my mind, you know, writing outlines and stuff. And I just never could find it. This finally I did, but I'm not sure to answer your question, Ben, where stories come from. You just... You know, each writer has his own way, and yeah, you just well, you know, you you you, you write about you know um, 
you know, Thermopylae. Now, you were a Marine, so I, I have to think that you get inspiration, right, um, from yes. this journey you're on. And and so, you know, like, you're, that was, Gates of Fire was your second novel, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So what was the, was it just an inspiration or a fascination with, with Spartan warriors? Where did that come from? Ah, that's a great question. I'll, I'll give you kind of a longish answer, Chris. Um, you know, my first uh, published novel when I was, like I said, when I was 55, was The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was a golf story, like a mis mystical golf story. And when you have one novel published, obviously they say to you, hey, what's the next one, you know? And I had no idea, no clue, you know? And, but I've always been uh, a fan of ancient Greece and reading, you know, the stuff that they make you read in school that nobody else can stand. And I was reading in Herodotus about the Battle of Thermopylae. And there was one, uh, this is the long answer, Chris, so bear with okay. me. Okay. There was a thing in there, Herodotus is talking about uh, who, who was the bravest person at, and they named this one Spartan, Dionychus, and they gave a, a little anecdote about him that when the Spartans had first arrived at the pass of Thermopylae and they were waiting for the Persians who were going to outnumber them 100 to 1, waiting for them to show up, a native of the region came running into camp, terrified, and he had seen the Persian army for the first time. And he was my, you know, his knees were shaking, and he declared there were so many of them that when their archers fired a volley, the mass of arrows blocked out the sun. Hmm. So this Spartan Dionychus replied to that, good, then we'll have our battle in the shade. And when I read that, I felt like the 2,500 years between now and then just sort of went away. And I felt like, I know this guy. I could, you know, I could relate to him. He's somebody I, I know. Then I'll probably answer this in way too long a detail here, but stop me or cut it. No, keep going, baby. This is good. When I was a kid, from the time I was like 11 all through college, I made money as a caddy, you know, carrying people's golf bags. And so I, I knew that in those ancient days, those ancient warriors, that they didn't carry their armor themselves. It was way too heavy. They had you know, what they called a, a battle squire that would carry all their shit for them, you know? So I thought, uh, that's how I could put myself as that character, because I can relate to the whole dynamic of working for somebody, you know, and the love that, the bond that forms, you know? Yeah. So I thought, okay, I could tell the story. I'll tell it as if I'm his squire and and tell the story from that. And so that that's how that that uh, now, of course, it's a real event. So I had history. I knew yeah. exactly what happened. But the the breakthrough for me was this way of telling a story that I would tell it as the squire of this one particular guy. Do you know where you're going with the story when you start writing? Do you know the ending? Uh, yeah, you always have to know the ending. It's like that's sort of one of the things I learned as a screenwriter. I had about a ten year career in Hollywood. C-level career in Hollywood. And one of the, the sort of the axioms of screenwriting is to always start at the end. You have to know what the climax is, what happens, you know? The Terminator catches up with Sarah Connor and they fight it out, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then you can work backwards from there and say, well, okay, what, what scenes do I need to make that 
final thing be the most um, most exciting? You know, if you think about Moby Dick, right? The ending of Moby Dick is Ahab's lashed to the whale. He's stabbing him with a harpoon, and the whale is going down. You know, that's that's a great great ending. And then you so you ask yourself if you're Herman Melville, well, what happened to get there? You know, but that yeah. So I definitely knew the ending. Yeah, of course. So I I would and love to be the becomes a little more difficult. How do you structure it? But yeah, you know the ending. Yeah. I, I wanna take a business time out from this awesome conversation to just draw the maybe obvious uh parallel here, but in our businesses, we're constantly encouraging people to start with the end of the mind. What what are we trying to build here? What is our destination? Right. What is our 10-year target? And if we figure that out, then we can start to build the scenes. What does it need to look like at the three-year mark, in the one-year mark, in this quarter, and then um, work backwards? So I, I love the parallel there, and I think we can learn a lot from the way that you uh, that you broke it down. I want to ask about the resistance because I also think there's a lot of parallel between what you've named and written about as the resistance to what business leaders face, whether they're starting or waking up on, you know, day 17 of year 14, the resistance is real. So can you, can you tell our audience about the resistance? Um, resistance with a capital R is, uh, well, let me back up a little bit farther. If you, this is coming from my experience as a writer. If you sit down to a typewriter and you roll in a blank piece of paper, or you sit down at the computer screen, you have a blank screen, you're gonna feel radiating off that screen, off that blank piece of paper, a, ne a negative force. And that force is fighting you and resisting you. as It's trying to make you quit right from the start. And the form that resistance, as I call it, with a capital R will take is is it will, you'll hear a voice in your head that says, you're a bum, you're a loser. Who do you think you are to start your own business? Or do you think you're Steve Jobs, you know, you're right. Bill Gates? <laughs> you know, wake up. Every idea you've ever had has been done before and done better than you're ever gonna do it. You're too old, you're too young, you're too rich, you're too poor, you're a bum, you're a loser, give it up. That's the voice in your head, right? And the form that resistance will take is all, always fear. It'll make you afraid and, um, and, and come up with all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. So if, if you're a writer, you know, that it, it replies to the book you're trying to write. You'll never write this. It's a dumb idea, etc. And so um, I think in the entrepreneurial world, it's obvious. It's really obvious because you're alone. You have this crazy idea. It's called FedEx. Everybody flies into Memphis, the planes, and then overnight, and everybody says, what are you, crazy? If I want right. to send a package from L.A. to San Diego, I send it to Memphis? Are you out of your mind? You know? So that's the, the voice of resistance. And um, as, a, as a writer or any type of uh, creative person or entrepreneur, to me, it seems like the first order of business is finding some way to overcome that, some way to get around that. Because if you don't get around it, you're never going to do anything. And I, I say in my book, The War of Art, that there's a, at the very start that there's a secret that real writers know and that wannabe writers don't know. And the secret is this, 
it's not the writing that's hard, it's the sitting down to write. And so that's, that's what I call resistance. And um, I, I know it applies to entrepreneurs because I get so many, so many letters. Yeah. You know, I, and I think of the opposite of that on the other side of that is grit. Because when I listen to your story, I mean, you said you didn't, you really didn't get that first novel till you were 55. So, so you've been fighting resistance all this time. You, you just like, like that self-doubt, right? It's in your yes, head. Exactly, yeah. And, and I'm thinking, well, how the hell did you last so long? What, what fire was burning in that belly to keep you going? Um, I just had, I had no plan B, you know? Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous line from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, did he say that? Yep. He, he said, when I came to America, there was no plan B. <laughs> Never, that's great. It's definitely true for him. But it was true for me, too. I mean, just in the sense of when I would try to have a plan B, like I would say, you know, people say, get a job, you know, do it, you know, get a, a serious job. Uh I would be so depressed at the end of the day, hmm. you know, that I wasn't doing what I, that I just couldn't keep it up. I would, there were jobs that I, I tried, you know, to last as long as I possibly could, but I couldn't. Um, the other thing, as far as how I kept going for all that time was I did have a modicum of success kind of along the way, you know, like I did start writing for the movies at some point. And so I actually was making money and I was a professional and things were, you know, were getting done. So even though I wasn't doing what my pure dream was, at least I was sort of on the road. Yeah. And I felt like I'm getting there little by little. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, like Ben said, very similar to the entrepreneurial journey. Um, yeah, I bet. Um, you know, you work for somebody else. It's not exactly what you want, but you're learning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and you reach a point. The same thing for me. Um you know, I was working for a Motorola distributor selling, you know, two-way radios to to the Coast Guard and paper mills. And, and I'm like, okay, it's it's not bad. I had some really cool experiences, uh -huh. made some money, but I just got bored. I'm like, this can't be it. <laughs> and, and that's sort of when I had, that's actually when, you know, because I'm a third-generation entrepreneur, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. When I, you know, born in 65, I rode three economic waves with my parents. And of course, I'm the eighth son in the family. So I, I didn't factor <laughs> that in to the financial stress of my parents. But my image was, oh my God, I just see my dad and mom working all the time. And, you know, of course, as a kid, no vacation this year, money's tight, got to hit payroll, whatever, whatever. And, and then, you know, I reached that point, kind of like what you're talking about, where it's like, I, I got to take the step. I, I do want to go build something of my own, like my grandparents and my parents. And you take that leap of faith. The mm -hmm. other thing that you call out that I love is, um, I, I can't remember your term for it. It was in Turning Pro, uh, where you talked about, was, was it the shadow um shadow careers shadow careers shadow yes careers. like where it kind of resembles what you're being called to enough to placate it but only for a certain amount of time and and you need to, to face that i i found that extremely sh uh, challenging for myself and uh thinking about a few of friends of mine like oh i wonder if that's what they're up against maybe explain that since we just threw it out there in the movie business 
there's such a thing as entertainment lawyers. And if you're a writer or a director or an actor, actress, whatever, you have to have, you have to have a lawyer to make deals for you and all that sort of stuff, right? And they're big firms, they make a lot of money. And but the interesting thing is that when you talk to your lawyers, you find that a lot of them want to be movie makers or they want to write or they want to direct and a, and a lot and some of them do some of them change careers you know but you can see that for these guys and gals being a lawyer is kind of a shadow career it's sort of adjacent to the career that they really want and i'm sure they thought to themselves well if i get a law degree and i work for a law firm i'm going to have stability i'm going to make money you know da, 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 and i'll be kind of close to I'll be close to the business that, you know, or that maybe they haven't even admitted it to themselves. I think that's probably what it really is. Or they just don't want to take the chance of, take the leap of getting out there. But that's kind of a shadow career. Or a lot of times I think people will work as assistants to yeah. uh, somebody, to uh, an executive or to a creative person or a, a photographer or a movie director or whatever it is. And they, they really want to do it themselves. They really want to make movies themselves. In some ways, that's okay. I mean, it's a way to learn. A lot of times that is the way you learn. You know, you get in and you watch what goes on. But um, I do think it's, it's possible to get kind of caught in a shadow career and, you know, and, and not be able to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember in, in, you know, reading Turning Pro, you know, you describe the difference between an amateur and a pro, you know, an amateur does it when they want to do it, when they feel like doing it. And of course the pro does it regardless of how they feel. That's a great and, definition, Chris. That's exactly it. Yeah. It, what was the, what, <clears throat> why did you feel the need to write turning pro? Um, Part of it was sort of a mercenary impulse, you know, that the War of Art was the first book. And I thought, you know, I got to do a little more than this. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I, I hadn't really said everything I wanted to say okay. from the first one. And also I find uh, that uh, when I write, I find out what I think. You know, I didn't really, I might not really know what I think. I just yeah. have a general idea. But when I have to actually write something down, and I wanted to explore that whole concept of turning pro a little more. Yeah, I that I've, uh, I'm, I kind of I'm starting to hand that one out like jelly beans. <laughs> and I started with my own kids. Ah, you know, they're adults. How did they now. respond? Um, well, they they recently got it. So I'm not putting any pressure on them. I'm ah. Once they complete it, they're going to come back and say, hey, Pop, that was amazing. And they'll want to talk about it. Ah, I hope so. Planting seeds. Planting seeds. Stephen, what do you hope you're remembered for? <laughs> uh, I haven't even thought about that. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm a storyteller. I just hope that people, you know, have read, um, particularly my my fiction, and enjoyed it. You know. Like I'm watching now, it's like years behind the times, Game of Thrones for the first time. <laughs> and it's just giving me and my girlfriend, Diana, we watch it every night. It's giving me a lot of pleasure. It's just great to to see that stuff. You know, it's a little gruesome sometimes, too. But, you know, I just I would just hope that uh, people that read my stuff just enjoyed it. Well, we know what you're watching. 
I'm curious, what are you reading? Ah, <laughs> uh, I read the craziest stuff. I mean, I'm reading a lot of, I read a lot of stuff for research. I mean, this is not gonna help anybody at all. I'm reading, I have a book here. I know this is not uh, video. I'm reading a book called 50 Years Down the Road, the story of Smith's transfer. It's a story of a little, don't, don't read this because it's just, it's only for me. It's, it's about the history of a, of a literal trucking company that I happen to know about because I drove with some of the guys that did that. And I just, uh, it's again, this is research because I'm working on another book now that I, is a, sort of about that. Um, what else am I, what else am I reading? Um, I, I don't know. Are, are you reading any fiction? Uh, you know, I really don't read fiction very much okay. because, and I feel bad about this. I feel guilty about it. But when I, when there's, it's a, when a writer has a really powerful voice, a fictional voice, it screws me up, you know, cause I start, I start losing my voice. I start thinking, I start writing like they do, you know, uh -huh. and I can get carried away. And then I have very high standards for fiction. And I, the only, mostly I read books that I've already read, you know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. I'm trying, I've got a bunch of books. I'm reading like five books at the same time, but I can't remember what they are right yeah, now. Yeah, that's my problem. That's my problem. So outside of writing, what's on your horizon? Um, not much. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're kind of locked down right now. And you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but pretty much at, at the point that I sort of turned pro as a writer. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a believer in the muse. I believe in the goddess of creativity and that she kind of brings brings you from one project to the next like what would bruce springsteen be doing he'd just be doing the next album right or the next broadway show yeah yeah, yeah so that's yeah. kind of what i'm doing i mean yeah cool very cool i'm, I'm not a very uh, interesting guy chris i'm pretty one-dimensional uh, not true um not true i'm really glad we got to hang out and um i'm glad that tractionville got to hang out with us today um i before we get out of here though will you tell me about Tractionville about this mug that I'm holding right here. Now they can't see it, but it's exceptionally cool. Tell us about it. Uh, there was, uh, I, I made a friend via email named Joel Cherico, who's a young, C-H-E-R-R-I-C-O, who's a, a young potter. And um, he approached me and he had this idea. There's in um, Plutarch, there's a description of a special, of a mug that the Spartan army used to carry and when they were on campaign and the, the, the thing, and that it was famous throughout the Greek world, the ancient world. And it had a kind of a, a narrow lip. And the point of the mug was when you were on campaign, you had to drink out of streams or out of rivers and dirty water, that kind of thing. And this mug was kind of designed so that it was dark on the inside. So if there was mud and you looked down and you didn't see it, and then it had this lip that sort of captured, you know, the various crap that was in there. <laughs> and so Joel just had this idea to recreate that mug. And um, like that mug that, uh, that you have, Benj, goes for like 145 bucks at retail. It's really a work of art, as you can yeah. tell. Yeah. So anyway, um, he's kind of said to me, kind of in a self-promotion way, he said, when you go on a podcast, this is when we thought that uh, it would be in person. So let me send you some mugs and you can give them out to the podcast hosts. So uh, we can't do that. So I sent them to you guys. Well, it worked. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> the story behind it, again, it's, I love that, just that connectivity back to your work. Um, 
and and it comes with a um uh a red sash it's wrapped up in a red sash yeah, they did a great job of packaging brilliant yeah. brilliant brilliant absolutely loved it so we'll make sure we put that in the show notes um would love to have you back on for another hangout conversation uh we always hey, anytime, man. seriously this is great I, you know thank you to do it anytime thank you you're so kind we love to just um, kind of open up our last question to like a what's on your heart. So if you could give these entrepreneurs, leaders of organizations out there, one piece of wisdom or encouragement or advice, the floor is yours. What would you have them know today? I would say, and I think this is, this is true of, of writers and artists and musicians as, as well as entrepreneurs. Um, I'm definitely a believer, as I said, in the muse. I believe there's another level of reality above us that is wiser than we are and that knows our own hearts and our own destiny. I believe we all have a destiny and that uh, it, that if we listen and believe in that higher level, that goddess that's inspiring us, like for instance, going back to Bruce Springsteen, if you kind of look at his albums, if you took a list of his albums, which I did in a, one of my books, and you look at them in, in, a, in a row, like 20, whatever it is, 25 albums, you can see that there's a real progression and that there's a theme, that they're all unified, that they flow, and that you say to yourself, nobody but Springsteen, no one in the world but him could have done this, you know? Um, and I think it's the same for our entrepreneurs, or for our, our writers, that we have a body of work in potential. Like if I'm if, if I'm a writer and I've never written a book, in potential, there's like a whole shelf of books waiting to be done. And it's all sort of out there in the next dimension of potentiality. Mm. And what we need to do, I always say it's like tuning into the cosmic radio station. There's a signal out there that's meant for, for you alone, whoever you are, and if you tune into that signal, it'll tell you what the next adventure is, what the next project, what the next business, whatever it is. And you'll know because you'll be seized by it. And you'll also know, going back to resistance with a capital R, that you'll be, because you'll be terrified by it. Yeah. You will, your knees will knock and you will hear all of those negative things in your head. Oh, you not, we're not good, you're not good enough to do this. So I'm a believer in that. And that's kind of, uh, uh, that's how I see myself going forward. Whatever the muse tells me to do, I'm gonna do. Right and all on. I'm trying to do is to have the guts to do it. Yeah. So to prepare myself skill-wise to, to be able to do that when the call comes in. Hmm. Beautiful. Nice. Tractionville, you are out there. You have the ability to author your own business. So uh, we'll keep working on the guts. We'll keep it interesting and cut somebody's head off every once in a while. <laughs> and we'll see you next week for Tractionville Tuesday. <laughs> We're out. <laughs>